The Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Motor Bunny, the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator that offers fabulous creative sexual experiences. We use it and it rotates, it vibrates, and it delivers mind-blowing orgasms. Enjoy Motor Bunny as your favorite sex toy. When you order the Motor Bunny, multiple attachments are included along with the link controller, which allows wireless control from anywhere. Motor Bunny is the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator on earth. Use the link in the show notes and spice up your sex life with a Motor Bunny. You're listening to Kinky Cocktail Hour, a conversation between adults about sex-forward relationships, kinky lifestyles, and frank communication. If you're under 18, please stop listening and visit scarletteen.com. I'm Lady Petra. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm Sapphire My pronouns are him, his, and he. And this is Kinky Cocktail Hour. Cheers! Cheers! So what are we drinking? We're drinking a new drink. I'm going to the old Boston Guide, Bartender's Guide, to look up drinks now. Okay. At school. This is called a Headless Horseman. Okay. So, because we're moving, we're, I'm also trying to use up alcohol that has little bits in it left. Yeah. So we have a vodka that we needed to use up. So it's two parts vodka and then three dashes of Angostura bitters. And you could use any kind of bitters, I'm sure, but I think Angostura works best. And then uh, ginger ale to top it off. And then you add an orange slice. Cool. It's a pretty orange color. Yeah. Just vodka and bitters. Yeah, it's amazing how bitters really has all this flavor that yeah. comes out. You get all the aromatics. and It's a complex you, bitter Angostura. You know what's neat about this now that I've just had this? Because I wasn't sure. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I know it'll taste like vodka and bitters. But, you know, it's a, it's a pleasing drink. It's a simple yeah. drink, right? But now that we have all those other bitters, because vodka is such a clean liquor. Palette, yeah. You know, it, it, it'll go, it'll take on anything. Right. I think we can try the same drink several different ways like yeah. the source and i'm number one and then try it with pochards which is more star anise type based yeah flavor a bit betters and then then we have those all those other ones in there right and just to, just to see what it tastes like yeah it'll be fun yeah chapter 20 chapter 20 we're getting close to the end of this book yeah i think there's only two more chapters left after this yeah and in this chapter we learn about her inner thoughts about Gordon's passing. Right. So just to set the stage, she goes to London, she looks up Dr. Crombie, mm-hmm. she goes she gets an appointment to see him. Who was who was the peer a, yeah. a professional peer of Gordon. Yeah. Um yeah, and so he starts to ask her questions like a psychiatrist would. Mhm. You know, probing, probing questions. He's a psychiatrist. He's going to probe right, her. Right. And, you know, she lets fly a lot of stuff. She wanted Gordon to die. Well, she wasn't didn't want him to die. She was pleased that he had died. Yeah. And she pretty much told him how Gordon met her, attacked Yeah, she fessed her. up. Everything. She, I mean, she, t- she didn't worry about... How she appeared to him. She pretty no. much gave him all the dirty laundry. The blow by blow, right. 
I thought an interesting aspect of this chapter was her conversation with the woman whose party she went to. Yeah, Leone or Leone, yeah, where she had been raped by Gordon in the in the courtyard and was you know disheveled and kneeled at his feet right. when she came to the party. And what was funny about that was Gordon had Leone believing that he was impotent. Yeah, because he didn't want to sleep with her or something. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because I think they tried to get it on. There was a comment in an earlier chapter about them trying to get it on, and he used the excuse that, that he he's was impotent, impotent yeah. and then she felt sorry for him, and then ever since then they just became social friends. Right. And she never once thought it was because anything to do with her. No. So then that conversation between her and Louisa was just hilarious because she's trying to impress, like majorly, how impotent Gordon was. Yeah, and how sad and, she was. And her. how sad she was for Louisa shares that it wasn't that way. And for her, that, no, and not at all. And then she went the other way and was trying to prove how virile yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it it infuriated Leonie because then she has to grapple with the idea that this man never wanted to sleep with her. Right. And she got pissy about it and then right. was then started attacking verbally Louisa in an in a underhanded way about... It was terrible right. that, that because you teased him about his impotence that he yeah and of course that wasn't wasn't it at all right <laughs> yeah we also learned how Gordon died we learned that he both poisoned himself and cut his wrists in a bathtub but then drowned in the bathtub yeah probably so, from the poison probably from the poison right or he passed out started to pass out from the blood loss one or the other yeah we don't know but the thing is that you know I want to talk about suicide because suicide is not a rational decision. Suicide occurs when the person who chooses suicide believes they have no other alternative. And so the question is, what was going on in Gordon's mind that had him believe he had no alternative? So what we know about it is that he had dumped Louisa... Months earlier. Months earlier, and he had gotten remarried to a nice young thing, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. in quotes, right? And he had emotionally run out of options because this is my opinion. I don't know the answer to this, but my opinion from the reading is that he was really fulfilled in his relationship as a dominant Mm -hmm. in that DS dynamic with Louisa with Louisa. Uh And he was really unfulfilled in his marriage and he couldn't have what he wanted in his marriage and he couldn't leave his wife, and so he just ran out of options, and so his choice was suicide. Which is weird, because he'd been married before and left the marriage. He hadn't had an eight-month or nine-month affair with a submissive before. Yeah, so maybe he couldn't deal with that he would live a life of not expressing his authentic self. Right. But he also had other psychological issues. Yes. I mean, he had raped his sisters. Yes. So, which, whether I'm he, not defending him. No, 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 yeah. I'm not saying you are, but... Whether that was, whether he had some kind of way of feeling, he didn't, he never expressed this in the book, but if, if at some point he finally dealt with guilt on that or the ramifications of that, right? Uh, who knows? I doubt it with the way he was wired. I think he had some mental instability already. Right. And I'm not saying because he was dominant or playing kick, I'm not trying to label him, but I think he had a lot of erratic behaviors already. And so who knows? how much of that played into also the suicide as well as to right. his mental illness. Is right. what I mean, because he, when we, we found out this time in this chapter, he talked about his analyst who was a much older mentor of him that he seeked analysis from. 
a woman. Sort analysis from it. Sort analysis from it. It was a woman. Yes. Who was, he's 49 when he killed himself. She was in her 80s. Right. 88 or something like when she died. And the reality is it was unfortunate, but they, Crombie thought that if she was around, she could have pulled him out of the depths of his despair. Right, so that's the other aspect of mental illness, of suicide, I should say, that plays, which is it's a function of a mentally ill person to commit suicide. Well, and you think about it, he'd seen, he talked about analysis before. At first we thought, because of him being a psychiatrist, we thought he was going back into practice. Right. He was in practice this whole time. What it was is he was referring to himself going into analysis, which means he might have been in analysis with this woman, uh, for a long time, for years off and, years. and on, and then she Who might have died. Him, then she might have died, and then he doesn't he, he have doesn't any have options. A, he doesn't have an analysis. You know, analysis. like when you're talking about suicide, of right. people running out of options. Right. He his submissive's gone. He's dismissed her, and doesn't know where she is. She's off. Right. Right. He's now remarried, but he can't stop the urges. Right. He had talked very seriously about needing to go back into analysis the last couple months of being with Lisa. Yes. And as a result of telling her she was dumping her, that he was going to do that. So I don't, don't even know. I mean, like, there's no indication in the book, but there's another part of me that says, he, he, I remember him saying, you can't be here if I go into, it just won't work if I go into analysis. Well, this woman was part of his life for a long period of time as an, for analysis, let's what if there was another dynamic? Because there's a 40-year difference there, but what if there was a motherly patient dynamic? He, maybe there was a dynamic there that he yeah. fell into. Speculating. I don't know. I'm speculating. Yeah, I don't know. It occurs to me that his relationship with Louisa was the closest he got to his authentic self-expression as a sexual creature. And it encouraged him to re- consider his behavior through his life for example raping his sisters Mm -hmm. and he was really like conflicted by that so he kicked her out right Mm -hmm. because he had to confront who he really was Mm -hmm. and he kicked her out and then he tried to marry down let's say which is to say somebody who isn't a submissive to sort of like legitimize his experience of being married and after that experience with Louisa, he discovered he can't do that. So now he can't have that. He can't talk to his analyst because she's dead. He's a longtime analyst. And he can't be married. And so he runs out of options. So he commits suicide. And he chooses to, like, he made sure he was going to die. He took poison and he cut his wrists and he, like, put his head in a bathtub, right? So he was, he was definitely done. Yeah, and this is a this is this is a very um, hot topic for me, probably for you too, but for me, in the sense that I've dealt with it twice, suicide yeah. attempts twice, and you know, suicide attempts, I'll say, are often there could be mistakes. I'm not asking people to become perfect at suicide. I'm I'm, I'm not right. at all judging that. But a lot of times, certain methods are chosen because it's a call for help. Because right. they, there isn't a hundred percent certainty of um, completion, right. if you will. And and then suicide itself, when someone does commit suicide and actually gets to completion, for the living, it's such a um, such a. 
I get that someone is mentally ill, and I'm not trying to judge. It's just it's just an experience I've had since I've been through it several times. Um, selfish act. Yeah. Um, and I and I guess because the person is in their own head, it is it's naturally going to be that way. Absolutely. So I'm not faulting the person for that. I'm just saying that it leaves the living with a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, there. They've reached the end of the rope as far as they're concerned. And feel like they can't talk to anyone. They have no options. Like That's that's why suicide is the only option, because they have no other options. Isn't, I know. Right? But you're right. It leaves the, the, the survivors with a lot of unanswered questions. And see, the difference is that very often the survivors aren't mentally ill, but the person who committed suicide was mentally ill. And so it's hard because the survivors don't have answers. You know, I was... I was really impacted by the suicide of Anthony Bourdain, yeah. for example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I identified with him on a thousand levels as a really chef, as a traveler, yeah. as a explorer of the world, as a, as a liberal sort of spokesperson for freedom. Right. You know, I just had a, I had a lot of personal identity wrapped up in him and, and one of the reasons was because after my divorce I watched like all of his like his like 10 years of his stuff and I got really like wrapped up in it, it right yeah. and so when he committed suicide it really impacted me in a way that was completely unexpected and I'm not even related to him in any way right but it just shocked me that somebody who had all of that going for him you know he was a celebrity he had a great tv show super popular he was a world traveler he had friends all over the world close friends he had deep meaningful relationships with dozens and dozens of people that you saw in that stuff and yet he still got to a place where he had no other options he left behind a young daughter a a a, a loving partner yeah and he made that choice because he had no other options in his mind and see, that's the thing that nobody who interacts with suicide can understand. So I personally haven't liked Gordon through this entire book. I've liked him less and less as the book's gone on. Right. And when I see that he's committed suicide, that's how he died. I get that he was mentally ill the whole time. Like I get it. Yeah. Right? And so my judgment of him is now tempered by my understanding that this was a mentally ill person. I totally agree with you because I have dealt with close people who have attempted. And I had an inkling prior to behavior-wise there might have been um, some psychiatric issues there that really wouldn't be evident to most people, but I live with this person day in, day out. And and over the years, just saw dependency behaviors that I thought were not normal. So when this happened, although completely unexpected, completely, like way out of left field, and the rationale of some of the choices made at the timing and stuff were weird, but you have to know that it's going from that person's perspective. You you can't make meaning for yourself. It's out no. of their meaning that yes. they're making this. And then post, uh, luckily we didn't lose the person, post post dealing with this person. Post-suicide. Post-suicide. Attempt. As a, attempt, yeah. A survivor of that, because I was a caregiver of this person. Yes. A survivor of 
someone else having post-suicide. Yes. I can't speak to their journey because I've never attempted suicide like, in that regard, so I wouldn't know, right? Yes, yes. But I can say for me as a caregiver of that person, how I went through all the stages of grief. Sure. Oh, my goodness. And they're still alive in front of me. Yes. And I went through all the stages. Yes. The, you know, denial. Yeah. The anger. Yeah. Bargaining. The, the bargaining. I mean, it, it was crazy. And I remember recognizing I was doing that because I was, there was a point where anger was part of it. And I was really frustrated, just frustrated right. with behaviors this person was doing, which was probably very normal for them right now at that right. point. But I was kind of beside myself because it had been months and months and months. Right. And I just remember all said and done after all of it, I recognize this person. This isn't new for this person. This person has been struggling with this somewhat depression kind of existence their whole life. And at, right. and at their mid to late 60s, they were, that was it. It was, right. they were at their last last in their spouse had just passed so they had felt there was no reason to live and was in was despondent and and I get now when you say that you have no option that's what it was this person had no option right like in their mind doesn't matter how, what I could say to them or what I could because that's what a survivor often says is yeah I could have said something to them they just yeah. needed to come talk to me but no but the reason they didn't talk to you is because you had no bearing on their decision, right? At all. Yeah, it's an Ill, it's a function of mental illness, and it leaves the survivors with tons of questions and concerns. And it's you know here she is discovering years later, and she's still like unresolved. She's incomplete in that relationship, right? Right. right. And see, that's the thing. That's we, why she rushed to London. Yeah, she wanted to get complete, and it's going to be hard for her to get complete because he's because he's dead, yeah. right? And the people who she's reaching out to don't have great insight. Mm -mm. You know, the psychiatrist. You find out Crombie's way more of a surface person. Well, he didn't. Really, he didn't really know Gordon. Well, Gordon made it sound like they were good friends. Yeah, he did. And, but and that's kind of disturbing too because he was bolstering his relationships meanwhile he's tormented which makes me think back and I'm just speculating but when he dismissed Louisa yeah. and said I have a sweet thing coming he may not have he may not have he may have he may, he not may have. have just been yeah. bolstering yeah I don't know I, I'm not sure that this chapter resolves anything for me for Gordon you know, what I get is he was a tormented, mentally individual. ill individual. And I'm certainly reading the book from the point of view of her. Like, I, like I'm interested in her experience as a submissive mm -hmm. and what her experience... Because, you know, now she's in a marriage where she's not having that experience. Well, even while she's talking to Crombie, when she makes note of entering the, his office for the first time... yeah. She makes note of exactly how he looked. I mean, down to the veins on his nose and right. things, right? The way he's dressed. And I'm now really recalling earlier in the book, when she first met Gordon, she did the one-up, down right. kind of thing. Took him in, yeah. And she described Gordon, the, the way Gordon looked, but 
the same way. Yeah. She talked about how what he was wearing, what his facial features were, right. how he sounded, right? Right. So it's it's uncanny. It's the same way. Meanwhile, as they go on through their discussion about Gordon, he calls her sweet thing several couple times, couple right. times yeah. and she makes mental note of it. Right. Not like it didn't fall in deaf ears. Right. And he inquires in kind of an inquisitive way, which leads her to feel the dominance, like where he positions himself in the room. He walks from one corner of the room and stands kind of yeah. over a windowsill over her, and then he goes back to the couch and looks right at her. Right. And there's some body language going on there. And then he makes some uh, statements about how in reference to when she shares about how Gordon takes her sometimes. She doesn't have time to even take her clothes off. He just right. takes her on the floor. He is very much like Gordon in the sense like he doesn't care about the specifics, but he just says, oh, that was either good or not good. Right. And he he's not into the story of it. And so no. she leaves there feeling, I mean, at the end it says like she feels exhilarated. Right. She got something off her chest. Yeah. She actually got to speak. Like she had to tell her story. She got to speak her story and like share about Gordon, somebody who she's only dreamed about and thought about and wondered about. She hasn't told anyone since about Since she Gordon. left, exactly. So she finally gets to talk about him with somebody who knew him. Yeah. So, so she feels like there's a certain validation that's occurring. There. Well, he validated. He said about his marriage, and I can't. Re- I think he was referring to the first marriage before the second marriage about how Gordon was whoring around. It was his oh, his prize for his marriage was to whore around. Right. Um, and that seems like that was the first marriage. Yeah, he talked about the second marriage in the context of you only have one true love, mm-hmm. and see, like what I think is she was his true love. I think so too. Yeah, not 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 Gordon's second wife, with whom correct he committed suicide. But Louise, I think his second wife was him, his attempt to normalize himself. Right. I can't remember when they said it. That it would be interesting to have the dates, but it feels like in that context that possibly his analyst, because he was talking about going to analysis, right? Yeah. And it had been several months since she had been dumped. Yes. He'd only been a short time married with his second wife and we don't really know where in there his analyst died but it no. sounds like he never got to analysis no it doesn't so my yeah. thinking would be i'm speculating but like he maybe his analyst died before he could get to her and so he defaulted into the marriage right. to normalize himself thinking the force you know i don't know that normalizing himself through a vanilla marriage would force him to be quote quote good or normal right right and it was killing him yeah interesting it doesn't I, I well for me it doesn't put a period in this no story yet there's more to hear from her we've got a couple more chapters I to know. learn about what she concluded out of this but you know the highlight of the chapter is really the understanding that after leaving, after dumping her, Gordon got married and then out of that marriage committed suicide. And that that is the sort of chronology that she didn't understand. So she got that. Mm -hmm. So 
there was a statement that, or a conversation she had with the, with Crombie about, you know, it's good that he's dead because now she knows he's dead and knows where he is. Yeah. It kind of kind of gets closure on that. That was a funny statement. They yeah. they played on words there. Yeah. So, we'll see. I mean, there's still more to there's still more to come. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. They could leave us hanging. Yeah. But yes. And this was probably the longest chapter in the whole book. It probably was, right. Because it went on page after page. I mean, Kindle page. But but I'm just saying, I was laughing because I kept thinking it was at the end and leave me hanging. And it kept on and on and on. So as we get close to the end of this book, yeah, we start to... To get ready for our next book. To get ready book. for our next book. And the next book we're going to do is Edge Play by Jane Boone. Yay! And we actually have an opportunity for a listener... To get a free copy of this book from Jane, the bound copy. Yeah, a bound copy, meaning Jane has shabaried the book. Yes. And so I'm going to play the introduction that Jane read yeah. from the prologue right. of the book. And if you want a copy, if you're a listener and you hear this and you want a copy, the first person to respond will get a free copy of the book. Awesome. This is the prologue to Edge Play by Jane Boone. Rubini saw the correction coming. So did Schiff. Burry made bets that earned a billion. I wish I'd possessed their foresight. I spoke in hushed tones about my concerns to my boss. I nudged the analyst to dig a little deeper, but I was no Cassandra with the gift of prophecy. I heeded the big swinging dicks who said everything was normal. So when the markets crashed, I was stunned and then I was crushed. The beating was devastating. My group was at the epicenter of the financial crisis and the massive correction that followed. If only Xanax had been enough, but something stronger was required. In the dungeon, there was a different kind of correction. Between the whips and the paddles, the ropes and the chains, I was meeting out punishment instead of taking it. The very men who had caused the crisis, those same big swinging dicks, the bankers and their lawyers, were suddenly naked in my presence and paying dearly for the privilege. They begged me for mercy, their cocks hard and their faces filled with need. I warmed to their howls and thrilled to their grunts. Male privilege came disguised as sexual submission and I wanted to hurt them all, selling misery along with orgasms. And that's how the book begins. That's it for today. If you're interested in kinky relationship coaching, online domination, or if you'd like to sponsor the pod to keep it going, please visit our Patreon website at Lady Petra Playground. You can reach me via email at ladypetraplayground at gmail.com. Our music is composed and performed by Roger Ferguson, who can be found at rogerfergusonmusic.com. Till next time, cheers! Thank you.